Chapter Four of British Highways and Byways from a Motor Car by Thomas Dowler Murphy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Christine Blashford. Chapter Four: A Run Through the Midlands. I had provided myself with letters of introduction from the American Automobile Association and Motor League, addressed to the Secretary of the Motor Union of Great Britain and Ireland, and shortly after my arrival in London, I called upon that official at the club headquarters. After learning my plans, he referred me to Mr. Moroni, the touring secretary, whom I found a courteous gentleman, posted on almost every foot of road in Britain, and well prepared to advise one how to get the most out of a tour. Ascertaining the time I proposed to spend and the general objects I had in view, he brought out road maps of England and Scotland, and with a blue pencil rapidly traced a route covering about 3,000 miles, which he suggested as affording the best opportunity of seeing, in the time and distance proposed, many of the most historic and picturesque parts of Britain. In a general way, this route followed the coast from London to Land's End, through Wales, north to Oban and Inverness, thence to Aberdeen and back to London along the eastern coast. He chose the best roads with unerring knowledge and generally avoided the larger cities. On the entire route which he outlined we found only one really dangerous grade in Wales, and by keeping away from cities much time and nervous energy were saved. While we very frequently diverged from this route, it was nonetheless of inestimable value to us, and other information, maps, road books, etc., which were supplied us by Mr. Moroni, were equally indispensable. I learned that the touring department of the Union not only affords this service for Great Britain, but has equal facilities for planning tours in any part of Europe. In fact, it is able to take in hand the full details, such as providing for transportation of the car to some port across the channel, arranging for necessary licenses, and supplying maps and road information covering the different countries of Europe which the tourist may wish to visit. This makes it very easy for a member of the Union, or anyone to whom it may extend its courtesies, to go direct from Britain for a continental trip, leaving the tourist almost nothing to provide for except the difficulties he would naturally meet in the languages of the different countries. When I showed a well-posted English friend the route that had been planned, he pronounced very favourably upon it, but declared that by no means should we miss a run through the Midlands. He suggested that I join him in Manchester on business which we had in hand, allowing for an easy run of two days to that city by way of Coventry. On our return trip we planned to visit many places, not included in our main tour, among them the Welsh border towns, Shrewsbury and Ludlow, and to run again through Warwickshire, taking in Stratford and Warwick, on our return to London. This plan was adopted, and we left London about noon, with Coventry nearly 100 miles away as our objective point. A motor car is a queer and capricious creature. Before we were entirely out of the crush of the city, the engine began to limp and shortly came to a stop. I spent an hour hunting the trouble, to the entertainment and edification of the crowd of loafers, who always congregate around a refractory car. I hardly know to this minute what ailed the thing, but it suddenly started off blithely, and this was the only exhibition of sulkiness it gave, for it scarcely missed a stroke in our midland trip of eight hundred miles, mostly in the rain. Nevertheless, the little circumstance, just at the outset of our tour, was depressing. We stopped for lunch at the Red Lion in the old town of St. Albans, twenty miles to the north of London. It is a place of much historic interest, being a direct descendant of the ancient Roman city of Verulamium, and St. Albans, or Albanus, who gave his name to the town and cathedral, and who was beheaded near this spot, was the first British martyr to Christianity of whom there is any record. The cathedral occupies the highest site of any in England, and the square Norman tower, which owes its red colouring to the Roman brick used in its construction, is a conspicuous object from the surrounding country. The nave is of remarkable length, being exceeded only by Winchester. 
Every style of architecture is represented from early Norman to late perpendicular, and there are even a few traces of Saxon work. The destruction of this cathedral was ordered by the pious Henry VIII at the time of his reformation, but he considerably rescinded the order when the citizens of St. Albans raised money by public subscription to purchase the church. Only an hour was given to St. Albans, much less than we had planned, but our late start made it imperative that we move onward. Our route for the day was over the old coach road leading from London to Holyhead, one of the most perfect in the kingdom, having been in existence from the time of the Romans. In fact, no stretch of road of equal distance in our entire tour was superior to the one we followed from St. Albans to Coventry. It was nearly level, free from sharp turns, with perfect surface, and cared for with neatness such as we would find only in a millionaire's private grounds in the United States. Everywhere men were at work repairing any slight depression, trimming the lawn-like grasses on each side to an exact line with the edges of the stone surface, and even sweeping the road in many places to rid it of dust and dirt. Here and there it ran for a considerable distance through beautiful avenues of fine elms and yews, the hawthorn hedges which bordered it almost everywhere were trimmed with careful exactness, and yet amid all this precision there bloomed in many places the sweet English wildflowers, forget-me-nots, violets, wild hyacinths and bluebells. The country itself was rather flat and the villages generally uninteresting. The road was literally bordered with wayside inns, or more properly alehouses, for they apparently did little but sell liquor, and their names were odd and fantastic in a high degree. We noted a few of them, the Stump and Pie, the Hare and Hounds, the Plume of Feathers, the Blue Ball Inn, the Horse and Wagon, the Horse and Jockey, the Dog and Parson, the Dusty Miller, the Angel Hotel, the Dun Cow Inn, the Green Man, the Adam and Eve, and the Coach and Horses are a few actual examples of the fearful and wonderful nomenclature of the roadside houses. Hardly less numerous than these inns were the motor supply depots along this road. There is probably no other road in England over which there is greater motor travel, and supplies of all kinds are to be had every mile or two. The careless motorist would not have far to walk should he neglect to keep up his supply of petrol, or motor spirit as they call it everywhere in Britain. Long before we reached Coventry, we saw the famous three spires outlined against a rather threatening cloud, and just as we entered the crooked streets of the old town, the rain began to fall heavily. The King's Head Hotel was comfortable and up-to-date, and the large room given us, with its fire burning brightly in the open grate, was acceptable indeed after the drive in the face of a sharp wind which had chilled us through. And by the way, there is little danger of being supplied with too many clothes and wraps when motoring in Britain. There were very few days during our entire summer's tour when one could dispense with cloaks and overcoats. Coventry, with its odd buildings and narrow crowded streets, reminded Nathaniel Hawthorne of Boston, not the old English Boston, but its big namesake in America. Many parts of the city are indeed quaint and ancient, the finest of the older buildings dating from about the year 1400, but these form only a nucleus for the more modern city which has grown up around them. Coventry now has a population of about 75,000 and still maintains its old-time reputation as an important manufacturing centre. Once it was famed for its silks, ribbons and watches, but this trade was lost to the French and Swiss, some say for lack of a protective tariff. Now cycles and motor cars are the principal products, and we saw several of the famous Daimler cars, made here, being tested on the streets. Coventry has three fine old churches, whose tall needle-like spires form a landmark from almost any point of view in Warwickshire, and give to the town the appellation by which it is often known, the City of the Three Spires. 
nor could we well have forgotten coventry's unique legend for high upon one of the gables of our hotel was a wooden figure said to represent peeping tom who earned eternal ignominy by his curiosity when lady godiva resorted to her remarkable expedient to reduce the tax levy of coventry our faith in the story so beautifully retold by tennyson will not be shaken by the iconoclastic assertion that the effigy is merely an old sign taken from an armourer's shop that the legend of lady godiva is common to half a dozen towns and that she certainly never had anything to do with coventry in any event leaving coventry the next day about noon in a steady rain we sought the most direct route to manchester thereby missing nuneaton the birthplace and for many years the home of george eliot and the centre of some of the most delightful country in warwickshire had we been more familiar with the roads of this country we could have passed through nuneaton without loss of time the distance was only a little greater and over main roads whereas we travelled for a good portion of the day through narrow byways and the difficulty of keeping the right road in the continual rain considerably delayed our progress we were agreeably surprised to find that the car did not skid on the wet macadam road and that despite the rain we could run very comfortably and quite as fast as in fair weather i had put up our cape top and curtains but later we learned that it was pleasanter protected by waterproof wraps to dash through the rain in the open car english spring showers are usually light and it was rather exhilarating to be able to bid defiance to weather conditions that in most parts of the united states would have put a speedy end to our tour a few miles further brought us to tamworth with its castle lying on the border between warwickshire and staffordshire the tower and town of scott's marmion the castle of the feudal baron chosen by scott as the hero of his poem still stands in ruins and was recently acquired by the town it occupies a commanding position on a knoll and is surrounded by a group of fine trees a dozen miles more over a splendid road brought in view the three spires of lichfield cathedral one of the smallest though most beautiful of these great english churches built of red sandstone rich with sculptures and of graceful and harmonious architecture there are few cathedrals more pleasing the town of lichfield is a comparatively small place but it has many literary and historical associations being the birthplace of dr samuel johnson whose house is still standing and for many years the home of maria edgeworth here too once lived major andre whose melancholy death in connection with the american revolution will be recalled the cathedral was fortified during the civil war and was sadly battered in sieges by cromwell's roundheads but so completely has it been rebuilt and restored that it presents rather a new appearance as compared with many others it occurred to us that the hour for luncheon was well past and we stopped at the rambling old swan hotel which was to all appearances deserted for we wandered through narrow halls and around the office without finding any one i finally ascended two flights of stairs and found a chambermaid who reluctantly undertook to locate someone in authority which she at last did we were shown into a clean comfortable coffee-room where tea served in front of a glowing fireplace was grateful indeed after our long ride through the cold rain it became apparent that owing to our many delays we could not easily reach manchester and we stopped at newcastle under lyme for the night this town has about twenty thousand people and lies on the outer edge of the potteries district where josiah wedgwood founded this great industry over one hundred years ago the whole region comprising burslem hanley newcastle stoke-on-trent and many smaller places may be described as a huge scattered city of about three hundred thousand inhabitants nearly all directly or indirectly connected with the manufacture of various grades of china and earthenware the castle hotel where we stopped was a very old inn yet it proved unexpectedly homelike and comfortable 
Our little party was given a small private dining room with massive antique furniture, and we were served with an excellent dinner by an obsequious waiter in full dress suit and with immaculate linen. He cleared the table and left us for the evening, with the apartment as a sitting-room and a mahogany desk by the fireside, well supplied with stationery, afforded amends for neglected letters. In the morning our breakfast was served in the same room, and the bill for entertainment seemed astonishingly low. Mine host will no doubt be wiser in this particular, as motorists more and more invade the country. An hour's drive brought us to Manchester. The road by which we entered the city took us direct to the Midland Hotel, which is reputed to be the finest in the kingdom. Manchester is a city of nearly a million inhabitants, but its streets seemed almost like those of a country town, as compared with the crowded thoroughfares of London. It is a great centre for motoring, and I found many of the garages so full that they could not take another car. I eventually came to one of the largest, where by considerable shifting they managed to accommodate my car, but with all this rush of business it seemed to me that the owners were in no danger of becoming plutocrats, for the charge for a day's garage, cleaning the car, polishing the brass and making a slight repair, was five shillings. For half the way, from Manchester to Leeds, the drive was about as trying as anything I found in England. The road is winding, exceedingly steep in places, and built up on both sides with houses, largely homes of miners and mill operatives. The pavement is of rough cobblestones, and swarms of dogs and children crowded the way everywhere. Under such conditions, the numerous steep hills, narrow places and sharp turns in the road made progress slow indeed. It was evident that the British motorists generally avoid this country, for we met no cars and our own attracted attention that showed it was not a common spectacle. However, the trip was nonetheless an interesting one, as showing a bit of the country and a phase of English life not usually seen by tourists. There is little to detain one within the city of Leeds itself, but there are many places of interest in its immediate vicinity. There are few more picturesque spots in Yorkshire than Wharfdale, with its riotous little river and ruins of Bolton Abbey and Barden Tower. This lies about fifteen miles to the northwest, and while for special reasons we went to Ilkley Station by train, the trip is a fine motor drive over good roads. The park which contains the abbey and castle is the property of the Duke of Devonshire, who keeps it at all times open to the public. The river wharf, rippling over shingly rocks, leaping in waterfalls, and compressed into the remarkable rapids called the Strid, only five or six feet wide, but very deep and terribly swift, is the most striking feature of the park. The forest-clad cliffs on either side rise almost precipitously from the edges of the narrow dale, and from their summit, if the climb does not deter one, a splendid view presents itself. The dale gradually opens into a beautiful valley, and here the old abbey is charmingly situated on the banks of the river. The ruins are not extensive, but the crumbling walls, bright with ivy and wallflowers, and with the soft green lawn beneath, made a delightful picture in the mottled sunshine and shadows of the English May day. On our return to Leeds, our friend who accompanied us suggested that we spend the next day, Sunday, at Harrogate, fifteen miles to the north, one of the most famous of English watering places. It had been drizzling fitfully all day, but as we started on the trip, it began to rain in earnest. After picking our way carefully until free from the slippery streets in Leeds, we found the fine macadam road little affected by the deluge. We were decidedly ahead of the season at Harrogate, and there were but few people at the splendid hotel where we stopped. The following Sunday was as raw and nasty as English weather can be when it wants to, regardless of the time of year, and I did not take the car out of the hotel garage. In the afternoon, my friend and I walked to Knaresborough, one of the old Yorkshire towns about three miles distant. I had never even heard of the place before, and it was a thorough surprise to me to find it one of the most ancient and interesting towns in the kingdom. 
not a trace of modern improvement interfered with its old-world quaintness it looked as if it had been clinging undisturbed to the sharply rising hillside for centuries just before entering the town we followed up the valley of the river nid to the so-called dripping well whose waters heavily charged with limestone drip from the cliffs above and petrify various objects in course of time by covering them with a stone-like surface then we painfully ascended the hill not less than a forty-five per cent grade in motor parlance and wandered through the streets if such an assortment of narrow footpaths twisting around the corners may be given the courtesy of the name until we came to the site of the castle the guide-book gives the usual epitaph for the ruined castles dismantled by orders of cromwell's parliament and so well was this done that only one of the original eleven great watch-towers remains and a small portion of the norman keep beneath which are the elaborate vaulted apartments where becket's murderers once hid no doubt the great difficulty the cromwellians had in taking the castle seemed a good reason to them for effectually destroying it at one time it was in the possession of the notorious peers gaveston and it was for a while the prison-house of king henry the second there are many other points of interest in knaresborough not forgetting the cave from which mother shipton issued her famous prophecies in which she missed it only by bringing the world to an end ahead of schedule time but they deny in knaresborough she ever made such a prediction and prefer to rest her claims to infallibility on her prophecy illustrated on a postcard by a highly coloured motor-car with the legend carriages without horses shall go and accidents fill the world with woe altogether knaresborough is a town little frequented by americans but none the less worthy of a visit harrogate is an excellent centre for this and many other places if one is insistent on the very best and most stylish hotel accommodations that the island affords ripon with its cathedral and fountains abbey perhaps the finest ruin in great britain is only a dozen miles away but we visited these on our return to london from the north on monday the clouds cleared away and the whole country was gloriously bright and fresh after the heavy showers we returned to leeds over the road by which we came to harrogate and which passes haredale hall one of the finest country places in the kingdom a large portion of the way the road is bordered by fine forests which form a great park around the mansion we passed through leeds to the southward having no desire to return to manchester over the road by which we came or in fact to pass through the city at all our objective point for the evening was chester and this could be reached quite as easily by passing to the south of manchester wakefield with its magnificent church recently dignified as a cathedral was the first town of consequence on our way and about twenty-five miles south of leeds we came to barnsley lying on the edge of the great moorlands in central england there is hardly a town in the whole kingdom that does not have its peculiar tradition and an english friend told us that the fame of barnsley rests on the claim that no hotel in england can equal the mutton chops of the king's head a truly unique distinction in a land where the mutton chop is standard and the best in the world an english moor is a revelation to an american who has never crossed one and who may have a hazy notion of it from tennyson's verse or lorna doon imagine lying in the midst of fertile fields and populous cities a large tract of brown desolate and broken land almost devoid of vegetation except gorse and heather more comparable to the arizona sagebrush country than anything else and you have a fair idea of the dreary dreary moorland of the poet for twenty miles from barnsley our road ran through this great moor and except for two or three wretched-looking public houses one of them painfully misnamed the angel there was not a single town or habitation along the road the moorland road began at peniston a desolate-looking little mining town straggling along a single street that dropped down a very sharp grade on leaving the town 
Despite the lonely desolation of the moor, the road was excellent, and followed the hills with gentle curves, generally avoiding steep grades. So far as I can recall, we did not meet a single vehicle of any kind in the twenty miles of moorland road, surely a paradise for the scorcher. Coming out of the moor, we found ourselves within half a dozen miles of Manchester, practically in its suburbs, for Staleybridge, Stockport, Altrincham, and other large manufacturing towns are almost contiguous with the main city. The streets of these towns were crowded with traffic, and streetcar lines are numerous. There is nothing of the slightest interest to the tourist, and after a belated luncheon at a really modern hotel in Stockport, we set out on the last forty miles of our journey. After getting clear of Manchester and the surrounding towns, we came to the Chester Road, one of the numberless Watling streets, which one finds all over England, a broad, finely kept highway leading through a delightful country. Northwich, famous for its salt mines, was the only town of any consequence until we reached Chester. We had travelled a distance of about 120 miles, our longest day's journey, with one exception, not very swift motoring, but we found that an average of 100 miles per day was quite enough to thoroughly satisfy us, and even with such an apparently low average as this, a day's rest now and then did not come amiss. It would be better yet if one's time permitted a still lower daily mileage. Not the least delightful feature of the tour was the marvellous beauty of the English landscapes, and one would have a poor appreciation of these to dash along at forty or even twenty-five miles per hour. There were many places at which we did not stop at all, and which were accorded scant space in the guidebooks, that would undoubtedly have given us ideas of English life and closer contact with the real spirit of the people than one could possibly get in the tourist-thronged towns and villages. End of chapter 4